You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1959th edition of St. Edmundsbury News Talk for the 14th of December 2023. The editor of this edition is Sheila Franklin, the producer is Peter Rayson and your readers are Neil Keeley and Sue Cunningham-Snell. We should also mention our processing team who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. And we commence, as usual, with the headlines. And Neil, I think you have the first one. Time to act over NHS death crisis. £300,000 boost to help fund hospice bills. Positive future for Care Farm. Thank you for your generosity this Christmas. Mental health campaigners are asking Suffolk Police to investigate more than 8,000 deaths among Norfolk and Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust patients. The Campaign to Save Mental Health Services in Norfolk and Suffolk has written to the county's chief constables requesting that they open investigations into 8,440 deaths of patients of the Norfolk and Suffolk Foundation Trust, that's the NSFT, since 2020. Campaigners want police to review cases where coroners have issued prevention of future deaths notices and where other patients have died in similar circumstances. Police have also been asked to assess whether the threshold has been reached for charges of corporate manslaughter against the senior managers and the trust board. An NSFT spokesperson said the trust is working to make sure that all recommendations and actions from prevention of future deaths reports are implemented and added that Caroline Donovan, the Trust's new CEO, is dedicated to making cultural changes. Mark Harrison, chair of the campaign, said, This is the biggest deaths crisis in the history of the NHS, and it is happening in the NHS Foundation Trust, charged with providing mental health services in Norfolk and Suffolk. The police are being asked to act because all other options to save the lives of people in mental distress have failed. We are being failed by all parts of the system that are meant to be there to protect us. The campaign has also written to NHS England, the Department for Health and Social Care and the Care Quality Commission, as well as MPs. Mr Harrison said, NSFT has been rated inadequate four times in the last eight years and is still in special measures. A spokesperson for NSFT said, we offer our sincere condolences to all families and carers of people affected. We can assure all families and carers that we are working really hard to learn from these incidents and do our very best to ensure that they are minimised in future. We have responded to all prevention of future deaths reports 
and work to make sure that recommendations and actions are being implemented. We would also add that there have been no prevention of future deaths notices issued during 2023. A Bury St Edmunds based hospice has received a six-figure grant to help fund increased day-to-day <coughs> running costs. St Nicholas Hospice Care will receive £300,000 over three years thanks to the philanthropists Julia and Hans Rawsing. The money means a hospice has an extra £100,000 per year for the next three years to help fund increasing costs due to inflation, energy bills and other rising expenses. Linda McKennell, Hospice Chief Executive, said, I would like to extend my most sincere thanks to Julian Hans for their generosity. In these challenging times, this funding is crucially important in alleviating the strain caused by rising costs, ensuring St Nicholas Hospice Care can continue to provide high-quality care and support to individuals and families facing dying death and grief. We currently need to raise 17500 each day to deliver our hospice services. We can only do that thanks to the support we receive from so many donors. We are profoundly grateful to Julian Hans for their generosity and for highlighting the collective financial challenges being faced by hospices across the UK. Alongside St Nicholas Hospice Care, 26 other hospices has also received a share of the £8.7 million funding the Trust announced on November the 23rd. The Trust worked alongside Hospice UK to ensure focused support for the regions for the highest proportion of hospices in need. The manager of a farm with a well-being and educational ethos is delighted to have received the go-ahead she was seeking to carry on with her venture. Dream Care Farm Community Interest Company in Baton Road, Thurston, near Bury St Edmunds, hosts events and activities for the community, including a Saturday farm club for children and an upcoming Santa's Grotto. The farm, formerly known as Field of Dreams, is run by Sue Smith, who launched it as a community-interested company in summer 2022 and took on the tenancy for the site at the end of June this year. Miss Smith had been seeking reassurance from Mid-Suffolk District Council, the local planning authority, that she was able to continue with her vision for the farm, using farming to support people of all ages and abilities. She wants to pass on farming knowledge and help those with poor mental health. She said she was over the moon to find out last month that the current level of activity at the site, quote, seems to comply with an agricultural use, unquote, and can continue without the need for planning permission. She said the future of the farm, which is run with the help of volunteers, was definitely looking positive now. Among her plans, Miss Smith is looking to launch a community garden for families to take along their children and grow produce that can then be shared. Preparations are taking place over the winter, with the garden set to open in the spring.
We will also be open to the general public three mornings a week to sell produce to keep the farm going, she added. A Berry St Edmunds charity says it's incredibly grateful for the generosity of the community whose efforts will help to make Christmas special for those in need. For the past month, the Berry Free Press has been collecting donations on behalf of Gatehouse in Degerton Way to allow its team to create festive hampers. Your generosity resulted in hundreds of items, included tin foods, dry goods, clothes and toiletries being given to a good cause. Charity Chief Executive Amanda Bloomfield said the team expected to make about 700 parcels of food over the Christmas period, with an additional of 40 to 50 emergency hampers to be filled in the coming weeks. She said this year had been especially tough for charities, with the cost of living crisis continuing to pinch purses, meaning not only were more people relying on food banks than before, but donations were also drying up. The team had been very busy with increased demand, which included people who had never needed help from the charities before. Amanda said, We were super pleased with the donations from the generous Berry Free Press readers and, as always, the generosity of people from the town and its surrounding area. I'd like to give a huge thank you to everybody who donated. I know these are difficult times and everybody is feeling the pinch. And the fact that people have been able to donate, no matter how small, is incredibly heartwarming. Thankfully, we're doing well enough with donations to meet our needs for the coming months, as January can also be very busy with people being strapped for cash after Christmas. While our appeal may be over, anyone who missed the chance to donate can still give directly to Gatehouse. Its team will be accepting Christmas donations until December the 22nd, but if you wish to donate after that date, then your gifts will help meet demand for the rest of winter. And now to more general news. Shocking figures have shown that the RSPCA has been called to more than 550 neglected animals in Suffolk in 2023. The new data, which shows figures between January and October of this year, reveal that the charity received 576 reports about neglected animals in the county during the first 10 months of the year. Dermot Murphy, RSPCA Inspectorate Commissioner, said thousands of animals' lives are hanging in the balance this Christmas with animal neglect reports a real cause for concern, including in Suffolk. But there is hope. Our frontline officers work tirelessly to bring neglected animals to safety and it's the kind-hearted public who power these rescue efforts. This winter, our rescue teams are set to be very busy trying to help and reach so many neglected animals, which is why we need animal lovers to join the Christmas rescue now more than ever and donate to help us be there for neglected animals in their time of need. In July, the charity revealed that animal cruelty cases were on the rise in Suffolk. 
hundreds of customers of new markets nationwide have been told they will have to use other branches for the foreseeable future after masked ram raiders smashed their way into the building society on Monday to steal its ATM cash machine. The front of the historic Grade 2 listed building in Newmarket High Street, once the home of Musk's butchers, was all but destroyed by the raiders, who used a JCP tail handle to prize the cash ma- machine free from the wall. They loaded part of the cash machine into a Luton van, which made off along with a white Mercedes A-Class. The JCP was abandoned in the street. Police cordoned off the high street site, where debris was scattered across the pavement, including some of the original Victorian tile work and the decorative pillar, which had been a feature of the shop front, which has now been boarded up for more than a hundred years. The raid was a carbon copy of one which took place in Soames Hall Street, Londis store last month. A nationwide spokesman said, Unfortunately, due to the extent of damage caused, the branch will remain closed for the foreseeable future. Customers needing to use a branch can use any in the surrounding area, such as Ely. The Trust, which runs West Suffolk Hospital, is facing stark pressures (coughs) as it manages long waiting lists heading into the winter months. In a report published for the West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust Board meeting on December 1st, Dr Ewan Cameron, Chief Executive, said, It would be remiss of me not to overtly state just how challenging things are at the moment. In his statement to the Trust Board, Dr Cameron said, The combination of increased demand on our urgent and emergency care services and the strike action means our waiting lists are still above where we would like them to be. He explained, At the end of October, we had 56 patients waiting over 78 weeks, of which 40 were capacity breaches. We had 621 patients waiting more than 65 weeks, but we remain on track to reduce this number significantly by the end of March 2024. Another of the key challenges Dr Cameron outlined was dealing with the ageing estate at West Suffolk Hospital in Bury. This comes as the Trust works on plans for a new hospital. During his statement, Dr Cameron praised staff at the Trust for their resilience and dedication to do their absolute best for patients. Two Suffolk schools have joined the list of education establishments built with the aerated concrete, bringing the total up to nine in the academy. Schools in Suffolk and across the country were plunged into crisis earlier this year after the government revealed reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete was present in some schools. It is now known that nine establishments in the county have been affected by the crisis. The latest Department for Education list shows Star Valley Community School in Clare and Brandon's Glade Academy are affected. Pupils at both schools remain in face-to-face education. Newmarket Academy, Hadley High School, 
Harlingay High School, Claydon High School, East Burgholt High School and Thurston College are listed as being affected by the RAAC. Thurston College has resolved the issues at its site, while Farlingay High School has erected temporary classroom after a third of the school was closed off. Penrose Learning Trust, which runs Hadley High, East Burgoat High and Claydon High, also implemented temporary classrooms. A total of 231 premises have now been affected by the crisis, according to the Department of Education. Plans to build a new care village with a 66-bedroom care home and 40 assisted bungalows have been submitted. If the proposal is given the green light, the development will be built on the 11.5 hectares of land off School Road in Elmswell between Bury, St Edmunds and Stowmarket. The application, which has been submitted to Mid-Suffolk District Council by Christchurch Land and Estates, said the planned site would be built on an existing agricultural field. The development will predominantly be single-storey and, if approved, will be built next to an 86-home development in a neighbouring field which was given the green light in June 22. As part of the development, there will also be a management building, clubhouse and communal area. The design and access statement states, The site will provide new high-quality homes and care facilities alongside accessible green space and new pedestrian and cycle links. Proposed buildings will be set within a framework of green infrastructure, which includes an extensive new wildflower meadow to the south of the development that occupies approximately half of the site. The document continues, The proposals will give rise to significant benefits in terms of providing for an established, recognised need, additional services for the community, in addition to savings in the public spending, and will free up family housing as a consequence of elderly people relocating into the retirement community. The planning application also states that 110 new car parking spaces will be built as a result of the new development. It will be considered by Mid-Suffolk District Council at a later date. The project is the latest care village development plan to be built in Suffolk, following a string of application in recent years. The Trust, which manages West Suffolk Hospitals, has been (coughs) recognised for the quality of support it provides to staff. The West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust received a gold title in the Pilot NHS England Pastoral Care Quality Awards. Sue Wilkinson, Executive Chief Nurse at the Trust, said, The care our healthcare support workers deliver to our patients and service users is absolutely essential. They offer unique high-quality care across all clinical areas within the Trust and are an integral part of our workforce. Our education teams have worked incredibly hard to ensure that there is bespoke support for all our healthcare support workers and this has been recognised in the acquisition of our Gold Pastoral Support Quality Award. 
A long-serving board member has said farewell to a Bury St Edmunds hospice after years of commitment to the charity. Charles Simpson, chair of the Board of Trustees, stepped down from his role at St Nicholas Hospice Care at its annual general meeting on Thursday after dedicating eight years to the role of chair and nearly a decade as a trustee. During his time, he guided the charity, which covers West Suffolk and Thetford, through unprecedented times throughout the pandemic and was involved with fundraising challenges and events. He said, The time I have spent at St Nick's has been a privilege. I am proud of everyone and all that has been accomplished. Trustee Anne Fisher was officially welcomed as the new chair of the Board of Trustees. A very St Edmund's estate has been plagued with youth-related crime, with Christmas decorations being vandalised and staff at a community centre being threatened. At a Bury St Edmunds Town Council meeting last Wednesday, a trustee of the new Bury Community Centre on the Howard Estate raised concern about young people disrupting businesses within the centre. Meanwhile, a founding member of a community group has decided not to put up the communal Christmas tree at the St Olive's shopping precinct because a group of three youths has been targeting residents' decorations and causing damage. Tom Murray, a trustee of the community centre, said that young people had been riding around on bikes and scooters inside, jumping on furniture and causing mayhem and damage. He added that a member of staff at the cafe had been threatened. These young people seem to think they can come in and misbehave, he said. We don't want it to spoil it for everyone else. I want to nip it all in the bud. The community centre will now be hosting three free courses, still drumming, graffiti, as art and DJing to ensure young people feel included. Tom also hopes CCTV will be used more effectively to catch young people in the act. Johnny Chandler, a founding member of the estate's Green Hearts, announced on social media that Christmas tree will not be going ahead this year due to a spate of incidents where householders' decorations have been cut or damaged. Mary St Edmunds Police have urged residents to report if Christmas decorations have been vandalised. West Suffolk Estate has been named among the best historic attractions in the UK in a national survey. Almost 3,000 people were asked by which about their favourite historic destinations in the country. The destinations were then given an overall attraction score and rated on engagement, facilities, food and drink, lack of crowds and value for money. Ickworth House near Bury St Edmunds was chosen as the best historical attraction in Suffolk with an overall score of 77%. The facilities at National Trust Estate were rated 5 out of 5 and refreshment options and lack of crowds were rated 4 out of 5. Early this year, Ickworth Estate was also named as the most Instagrammable place in Suffolk. Bury St Edmunds Abbey also made it onto the list with an overall score of 73%. Fountains Abbey in Yorkshire 
and the Royal Yacht Britannia took joint top spot as best historical attractions in the UK. Samage Stackers, <coughs> located in Boldera Road in Bury St Edmunds, was awarded with a certificate of recommendation awarded by Restaurant Guru. Restaurant Guru provides users with information on restaurants, including photos, menus and visitor reviews. Posting on social media, Samage Stacker said, This is a huge deal and a massive congratulations go to the whole team for their hard work, dedication and passion. To some, it's just a sandwich. To create a sandwich is something entirely else. Thank you to our lovely customers who have supported us over the years. Without you, we are nothing. The recommendation certificate is given to restaurants across the world based on positive reviews and excellent marks left by customers. Other restaurants that have won the award can be found in countries such as Canada, Croatia, Germany and the USA. Despite growing up in the landlocked county of West Midlands, David Atienza was able to access sailing thanks to school trips. Fast forward decades and the retired teacher who lives in Bury St Edmunds has received a Lifetime Commitment Award from the Royal Yachting Association for his central role at Young People Afloat, based at Lackford Lake, helping to get new generations of young people involved in sailing. David, who taught at Bury St Edmunds, Howard and Horringer Court Middle Schools, became involved in Youth People Afloat, the Young People's Sailing Club, in the early 1980s when Terry Morden, who launched it, found him on a list of sailing instructors. The Royal Yacht Association Volunteer Awards 2023 citation for David says he has been central to the formation and development of Young People Afloat for nearly 40 years. He is clear, enthusiastic, incredibly supportive and extremely well prepared for each teaching session and in running the club, it reads. New instructors soon learn from his example and past youth members become instructors, making the group sustainable. The Royal Yacht Reyotting Association also said David was always willing to help with the working parties and could often be found at the club cutting the grass. He has also been involved in instructing the youngsters from a school for children with learning disabilities. Cheerful and positive, he is an inspiration to hundreds of young sailors with his welcoming, friendly attitude. David said he first accessed sailing when he was 12, at the time living in Coventry, when he went on a week's school camping trip to Chelmondiston on the Shotley Peninsula in Suffolk. A group of women <coughs> undertook a festive walk through Bury St Edmunds in aid of military charity, Walking with the Wounded. The fundraising group, who called themselves the Sleigh Bells, handed out presents to passers-by as they walked from Morton Hall to the town centre. Walking with the Wounded is a personal cause for the participants, as two of them, Izzy Seeley and Bella Cleveland, lost an army friend in February, while Emily Smith's uncle is also in the military. 
They raised £800 so far. Izzy's mother, Sally Seely, said, People were wanting to take photos. Little kids were getting involved. My little dog was there with them, and I think he drew in a few people. People were hooting their horns as they were going into town, gen generally getting into the spirit of it. The organiser of the 31st East Anglian Beer and Cider Festival said he was delighted to be able to give more money to charities this year, thanks to another record-breaking event. Martin Bate from the West Suffolk and Borders Campaign for Real Ale hosted the six-day festival at St Edmundsbury Cathedral between August 23rd and 28th with more than 250 real ales and around 50 ciders. And on Saturday, Martin was able to split £15,500 £15, between 20 charities which helped with the event. He said, It is great to be able to give this record amount to these worthy charities. 6,300 people came through the doors to the festival this year, up by 800 from the previous year. And this will help even more people through these charities. I want to thank everyone for coming, my festival colleagues and volunteers and the cathedral and its staff, and we look forward to next year's festival, which will be between August 21st and 26th. Senior editorial directors of several local news organisations, including Alif Media, owner of the Berry Free Press, have joined forces in an unprecedented call for Neighbour from Hell, BBC to abandon its plan to expand aggressively into local news marketplaces already well served by commercial providers. In their message, editors warn that the BBC is an equally potent threat to the substantial of local journalism as the tech platforms fixated on stealing local media titles, readers, businesses and the jobs of their journalists. It is thought to be the first time editorial chiefs from local publishers who said the BBC attack on local news media was a shameful legacy for BBC Director General Tim Davey have co-signed a joint message in this way. If the BBC was a family and lived in the house next door to you, it would be the neighbour from hell, the editor said. That's the verdict of some of the most experienced local newspaper editors in the country, who now regard the BBC as little more than a state-funded juggernaut, on course to suffocate independent journalism in every city, town and village in the UK. The BBC seems to be on a mission to be the only show in town, having taken an axe to its much-loved local radio stations, so it can start writing news stories online, which you can already get from the local newspapers, which are currently battling with tech platforms like Google, Meta and Apple. The editors said, unlike Google, Meta and Co, the BBC's funding is guaranteed by the licence fee, meaning the British public is underwriting the biggest threat local journalism has ever faced. 
It is flushing your cash on local news websites and make it increasingly difficult for proud, independent news sites to survive in the long term. The editor said that if the BBC wanted to fairly compete and support a diverse and trusted local news reporting ecosystem, it should focus its efforts on providing a snapshot of life in its 12 English regions, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, and abandon its role out of the 34 local websites. The editor added, it could do so much more to link a local publisher's help, helping them to thrive, rather than trying to close them down. Even such a simple act, repeatedly asked for over the years, seems beyond the BBC. Earlier this year, we called on the BBC to be a better neighbour. It is time the BBC showed that it is not the biggest threat to local community independent journalism, but a global broadcaster focused on delivering the very best television and radio in line with its charter. series of brief uh, articles, news in brief. A draft blueprint for future development in West Suffolk is set to progress to its next stage. West Suffolk councillors are being recommended to approve the next stage of consultation on the West Suffolk local plan when they meet later this month. The local plan will guide how and where new homes and employment will be built up to 2040. On Tuesday, members of the Council's Cabinet agreed to recommend the submission stage draft of the plan for consultation. The Council will be asked to approve this when it meets on December the 19th and subject to that approval, the submission draft would then go out to consultation early next year. The local plan will allocate sites for 5,211 new homes alongside 9,075 homes that already have planning permission and a windfall allowance of 1,200 homes. The local plan also provides for 86 hectares for employment growth. The Christmas Craft Fair <coughs> at Blackthorpe Barn, located at the heart of the Ruffham Estate, is a top festive destination for those looking to buy one-off gift items. The fair united about 50 makers and sellers from across Suffolk for numerous weekends of trading this year, starting from November the 14th. After six weeks of trading, the Christmas fair closed on Sunday. It's been a very successful year with visitor numbers increasing week on week and a fantastic atmosphere, owner George Agnew said last Thursday, ahead of the market closing this weekend. The makers and exhibitors have thoroughly enjoyed it too and will be coming back next year. Some visitors may not be expecting the craft fair to finish this weekend, but due to how Christmas falls, we had to push it back a week this year. Illuminations at the Ickworth estate were seen by thousands of people this year. <coughs> Ickworth Light Nights which ran from November the 10th to the 26th, was visited by 11,000 people. Ickworth is now hosting Staged Splendour, which sees the estate transformed to celebrate the Georgians' most popular festive traditions every day until January the 3rd from 11am to 3pm. 
The experience is included in usual admission prices. And now another little article on Christmas lights. And this is about a couple who are inviting people to enjoy their Christmas lights display. Karen and Mark Levitt, who moved to Red Lodge this year, enjoy brightening up people's lives with their annual illuminations, but this is the first year they're doing it as a fundraiser. The couple, formerly of Ottersham in Cambridgeshire, are supporting St Christopher's VC Primary School with the donations raised from their peppermint walk display. Their lights are always in memory of Karen's mum Kate, who gave the couple their first set of festive lights, but this year there's also a big star on top of the house for her. And they shine bright for my husband's mum and dad, Iris and Jack, as well who passed the last couple of years, said Karen. A new guided walk in Bury St Edmunds is being launched to coincide with the screening of a major new miniseries. Masters of the Air about the United States Air Force in East Anglia during World War II will stream on Apple TV in January. So Berry Tour Guides, in collaboration with Guildhall, have created a new 60-minute guided walk about the town during the war. Plans to convert Bury St Edmunds Town Centre offices into two homes have been given the green light. West Suffolk Council has granted planning approval and listed building consent to convert the numbers 83 to 84 Guildhall Street and its rear outbuilding into three dwellings. The Grade 2 listed properties formerly used as solicitor's offices back onto St Andrews Street South. Now we have letters, and we start the letters section this week with a comment from Barry Peters, editor of the Berry Free Press. Christmas is a time for families and for joy. Sadly, it's also a time when our own losses are brought into even sharper focus than usual. For those in the health and caring provision, professions, it's business as usual. Life and sickness goes on whether Santa is coming down the chimney or not. <coughs> we are lucky in West Suffolk to have a marvellous hospice in the shape of St Nicholas Hospice Care. So this week's news of an extra £300,000 being given to support the work there was a real bright spot to lighten even the darkest of December days. It costs around £8 million to run the hospice each year. That's equivalent to £22,000 a day. The hospice receives some statutory funding, which covers around 20% of costs, but that still leaves a hole in income of 17500 per day to enable it to be there for those people who need its vital services. Oh, sorry, I've got to, I'm going to sneeze. <laughs> we are not all in the position of Julia and Hans Rousing and able to support worthy causes, but that doesn't detract in any way from the wonderful gift that they have made to support those with life-limiting conditions. When the worst news hits and hospice care is needed, it's comforting to know the likes of the rousings are there to offer a supportive hand. Uh, my first letter is from Dave Halls, and that comes via an email, and he writes, The poor have suffered enough. 
I'd just done a day at a food bank and it was absolutely eye-opening. Good people who go to feed their children because they can't manage. This is like Victorian England. The Tories have caused this. They have decimated the living standards of hard-working people and now they have the king of austerity in, as in there. As a whole, the government stinks. The poor have suffered enough. Please get this lot out so we at least have a chance to get away from the biggest drop in living standard since records began. My next letter comes from David Bedford in Bury St Edmunds. Read the headline in Thursday's issue, quote, Hospitals squander £3 million on agency staff. This is a drop in the ocean compared with the three billion spent on what I suspect are mainly spurious negligence claims. Can you think of any other business displaying advertisements encouraging people to contact solicitors to sue them? About 20% of nurses in our local hospital appear to have a clipboard and spend most of their time asking patients the same questions to ensure they have the correct limb dealt with. The service should be at patient's risk. Very quickly, insurance companies would provide cover if requested. Nurses could then return to the work they are trained for, and waiting lists would soon disappear. Adrian Store via email claims, PM is out of touch with the rest of country. In the aftermath of the autumn statement, I am beginning to think that our unelected Prime Minister is trying to segregate us as a country. One has to question the sense behind the cut to national insurance at a time when the National Health Service is in crisis and in need of more staff and resources if it is to operate safely. Rishi Sunak has lost the plot, with his smoke and mirror strategy leaving the poorest even worse off. Our minimum wage is a joke in today's world, with costly bills and food prices continuing to rise. We have families having to decide whether to eat or heat their homes. The government is a sham. We must have a general election now. We cannot continue to see the people of this country robbed through an unfair tax system where only one person wins. We need a party that would look at housing at our care system and our manufacturing industry and public services. We need more jobs, better pay, affordable housing and significant investment in the NHS to stop long waiting lists. We need a government that represent all working class people of this country. This is a strategy which will build a country for everyone. We need to build this country on trust, not greed, and bring everyone in a journey to success. This is from Andy Blackburn, also via email. Apparently the Prime Minister has cancelled a meeting with his Greek counterpart due to a disagreement over the return of the Parthenon marbles to Greece. A bit of history. Lord Elgin purchased the statutory, the statuary, from Greece, then a subject state under the, the Ottoman Empire, with a license from the administration that had scant regard for the history of Greek civilization, let alone the feelings of the Greek people. Now, if I, in all honesty, buy a used car from a vendor, 
and it turns out that they did not have the right to sell it as it was stolen property, then, by UK law, it should be returned to the original owner without my having any rights to the car or recompense for financial loss. Imagine how it would feel if some country, which having conquered Britain, allowed a third country to quote-unquote buy Stonehenge and transport it to a state thousands of miles away, only then to obdurately refuse to even discuss any repatriation. Would we not be jumping up and down in righteous indignation, demanding its return? Mark Sutcliffe from Bilderstern writes... Comfort and joy and goodwill to all men, or so the song goes. Sadly, that does not apply to migrants or foreigners in general, in the hearts and minds of many. The desperation of this government to get its shabby and expensive Rwanda scheme to work is plain to see. Stop the boats, they scream, as in the background their own policies have allowed in thousands of legitimate illegitimate immigrants to fill jobs. Now the economy either needs them or it doesn't. I thought businesses decided this. Care homes recruit abroad because many British people don't want to take up these challenging and demanding roles. The avenue is to be cut off, apparently. These vital roles are to be filled, on paper anyway, with the long-term unemployed he will be forced into them. What level of care will these disgruntled, unmotivated people provide to our vulnerable and elderly? Pay is low in this sector, and you have to work all hours in difficult conditions. Many other cultures venerate the elderly in a way that perhaps we don't, which makes for better care workers. This policy, in my mind, is a recipe for disaster. The Conservative Party I knew is gone. It has been replaced with people more interested in playing to the right-wing racist gallery with gimmicks and sound bites than doing the right thing for the country as a whole. This comes from Colin Rossini. <clears throat> Just why is this nation so engaged in building its own funeral pyre against the vulnerable and elderly? I refer to Barclays Bank closing 21 of its branches and further damaging financial access to pensioners, already deprived in many ways of the support access they once took for granted. Along with a selfish grudge to get cash, cash transactions out of the system, this is a sorry theme for those manipulating the markets by sneering at those outside the roulette wheel. Not only are they being faced with a diminishing bus service into the nearest town, it erodes their self-respect and makes a mockery of the very existence as a coherent society. Do those so-called temples of finance ever pause long enough to consider their social consequences of their actions? Much of rural Britain has lost its link links to what people have paid a lifetime of taxes for because of those disinclined to think beyond a balance sheet. Cruel-lipped slayers of dignity are just short-termists, thriving at the expense of social decency and standards. Now I have two short letters um, showing opposing views to the funding of the BBC. And the first is from Colin Rossini of Dovercourt. 
and it's titled Reasons to Value Our BBC. That prisoner of his own ideology, Rishi Sunak, needs to know that there are five reasons to adequately fund the BBC. One, free of crass advertising, now running up to slots of five minutes a time, which destroys any interest in the programmes. Number two, sport on commercial TV is being dominated by gambling companies, which feeble reminders to be gambling aware. Number three, the BBC is a neutral, as any broadcaster can be. Consider the pro-Tory channel GB News. The BBC is respected worldwide, with a network unmatched anywhere. Number five, is always the BBC the public turns to in time of crisis, e.g. the death of the Queen Elizabeth. I know viewing options are changing, but none possess the proven stature of the BBC, and an increase of, say, 10% is little in comparison to what is paid out to subscription services of low quality. And in contrast, Mr R. A. Smith of Hadley writes, Why do our feeble governments think it's a good idea to keep a licence fee for the BBC? It's just gross. No taxation without representation. Now, my next letter comes from Councillor Richard O'Driscoll, who is the portfolio holder for housing at West Suffolk Council. I was disappointed to read the letter in Berry Free Press, December the 1st, from Mark Sullivan, criticising the planned development of 13 houses in Ruffham. Mark's contention that these houses are being built purely for profit is simply not correct. These much-needed homes are being developed by Barley Homes, a company wholly owned by West Suffolk Council, who are seeking to extend the number of genuinely affordable homes in the district. The company has a strong social value base, which includes building affordable homes that meet all of the latest environmental and design standards and enhance local communities. The Ruffham development will provide family homes that are located close to the school and village shop and will help sustain these important services. Any profit that is made from the sale of properties will be reinvested in council services. The the concerns raised by Mark are, of course, important and will be picked up through the planning and consultation process. I hope that this letter goes some way to reassuring residents of the council's good intentions. A tale of winter hold-ups on the A14, writes Don Black from Dis. December the 1st, officially the first day of winter, brought no joy to thousands of us stopped in a two-hour blockage of the westbound A14. Luckily, we had coffee in Cambridge services, but couldn't have planned lunch later nor arrive at Stratford-on-Avon in daylight for a stopover. Next morning we continued our journey in freezing fog, but at least could appreciate what a wonderful diversity we have in our country. The half-timbered houses and cottages we passed had square patterns of beams in white walls instead of what we have in Suffolk. Object of our journey was to a family party well ahead of the seasonal rush. All went well with a Christmas Day lunch, traditional except that granddaughter and spouses 
while back in their classrooms or other work on Monday. And my last letter is from Clifford Davy in Stowmarket. We have just returned from a very enjoyable cruise to Norway. We were well looked after by the crew on board. The food was ready for breakfast, lunch, tea time and dinner, and nothing was too much bother, whatever we needed. Entertainment came in games, quizzes, musical shows, and simply relaxing with a book. On shore, the streets and shops were ablaze with Christmas lights and decorations, with a background of the stunning mountains covered in snow. A couple of rough seas added the enjoyment but everyone took these situations in their stride, although the strides were a little unsteady at times. At the port of Bergen, the captain decided to avoid forecast gales by sheltering overnight, which delayed sailing by 12 hours. So instead of docking at Tilbury at sunrise, we docked at sunset. Sunrise on the cruise came between 9 and 10 a.m. and sunsets 1 to 2 p.m., Short daylight indeed, spectacular views these provided too. And seeing whales and the northern lights, I reckon we had a fun and interesting cruise in total. <coughs> Lastly, our cabin steward was told he could unexpectedly go home for Christmas in India to be with his wife and three children. A complete happy ending indeed. And finally, the last letter is from John Dell of Shockley. He wants just to be very clear on this. Can I be very clear on how tired I'm becoming about the Prime Minister and his ministers telling us how clear they're being on any subject they happen to be talking on at any moment in time? Clearly it's very irritating being told how clear a minister is being about any issue when clearly they are not being clear about the issue and frequently and clearly have not answered the question at all. I believe I've been very clear on that. <laughs> now we have a feature and we've got just one this week uh, which has been split into two halves and it's called "'Twas the Night Before Christmas." Believe it or not, ghost stories on Christmas Eve were once a popular way to get into a festive mood, with some Suffolk writers penning well-known favourites. Stephen Roberts delves into other literary Christmas connections. Log fire burning, presents gaily wrapped under the deck tree, telly on, more repeats, the King's Christmas message, turkey roasting in the oven, the family gathered, excited children, sparkly decorations, snow falling on a winter wonderland outside a leaded window. We all have our idea of what makes a perfect Christmas. But what of Christmases past? With some seasonal Suffolk-connected scribes as guides, let's journey through the past 250 years. We all need something easily digestible during the excesses of Christmas. A Simple Story by Elizabeth Inchbald, 1752-1821, from Berry St Edmunds, is regarded as one of the earliest romantic novels, a story of passion that found its way into Christmas summary classics, a 2013 series of abbreviated works, digest form, if you like. Inchbald's ta tale isn't about Christmas per se, 
but it makes a suitable festival offering, as romance and passion may be on some people's minds. Christmas is a popular time for popping the question. Poet Edward Fitzgerald, 1809-83, was born in Breadfield, just north of Woodbridge, and if stories and sermons can illuminate Christmas, then so might a poem. But it's Fitzgerald's letters that interest me, published in two volumes. His copious correspondence is a throwback to when we habitually put pen to paper. The closest we get today is often the end-of-year round robin inserted into Christmas cards, regaling the year's family triumphs and disasters. Christmas wouldn't be the same without them, but they became so annoying to journalist Simon Hoggart that he published the worst in a couple of books, subsequently published in an anthology, The Christmas Collection, the ultimate collection of round-robin letters. It might make a good gift. Fitzgerald, too, dwelt on the festive season in his letters. Now, I probably shan't write to you again before Christmas, so let me wish you and Mrs. Allen and your family a happy time of it. He probably had too many presents that needed buying and wrapping. Along with Victorian Albert, Charles Dickens, uh, he lived 1812 to 1870, helped create the Victorian Christmas we enjoy today, or perhaps the one we imagine we should. Suffolk was well known to him. He lived in the county, reported on it as a journalist, and used it as a setting for his novels. I suppose the story that resonates most at this time of year is A Christmas Carol, published in 1843, which is full of moral stuff. Coincidentally, the person who may have inspired the infamous character Scrooge, a byword for meanness, may have been John Elwes, and he lived 1714 to 1789, a notorious miser with strong links to Suffolk. He even looked like Dickens' anti-hero, an uncle of Elwes bequeathed his fortune to his nephew when he died, and Elwes ended up owning substantial Suffolk estates. He attended the races at Newmarket, travelling with nothing more sustaining than a two-month-old piece of pancake in his pocket, just to save a few bob. Christmas is a time for generosity of spirit, something which even Scrooge eventually understood but many families still have a bar humbug merchant among them, as well as the unwanted relative who outstays their welcome. Ah, those festive season traditions. Dickens may not have invented Christmas, but he helped with its 19th century renewal popularisation, including some elements they have endured. He was a great storyteller. Who doesn't love to hear his ghost story, The Signalman? But for a good Suffolk ghost story, turn to Mr. James, and he lived 1862 to 1936, who believed a spectral saga was the way to spend Christmas Eve, especially if the tale was written for the occasion, then read convivially to friends. Christmas Eve was a traditional time for swapping such stories stemming from an early Christian belief that spirits and demons wander the night before a major holy day, just like Jacob Marley. James grew up in Suffolk in Great Livermere near Bury St Edmunds. He often returned to the county and Suffolk locations inspired his stories. 
Felix Stowe became Burnstow in his most famous and terrifying story. Oh, whistle and I'll come to you, my lad, read it on Christmas Eve, and you could find yourself wide-eyed and sleepless when Santa arrives. Christmas is not a fixed feast. It changes with the times. But maybe there's still a place for fun from times past. Storytelling shivers down the spine on Christmas Eve as we swap scary stories, a bit of goodwill to all, and maybe even a nod to the true meaning. Hopefully, you won't receive too many round robins or guests who overstay. They're welcome. Happy Christmas, all. We're coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick <coughs> or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given. Alternatively, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We'd like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. Now, this is our last edition for this year. News, News Talk will be back again in two weeks on the 4th of January. So until then, from Sheila, Peter, Sue and Neil, we wish you a very Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone. podcast brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St. Edmunds studio. Thank you.